0: Welcome to the seven and seven show where your host, Zach Ellison extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing, www.arivc.com, let's grow.
1: All the risks that you've identified which are the ones that keep you up the most? Which are the hardest for folks to hedge, in other words?
2: Well, uh, on an individual basis, um, fraud. Um, And so, you know, it's one of a whole series of idiosyncratic risks that we look at and think about. And so we, just as we want to minimize what we will call beta risk, you know, correlation to the overall markets in, in, in a manner that, We don't have control over. We want to minimize alpha risks, idiosyncratic risks, and those include fraud and other, you know, industry or geographic specific uh, factors that may be out of our control. And with regard to the latter, the only real way to mitigate that is through a combination of uh, position diversity and uh, and relative orthogonality, lack of correlation amongst the constituent parts. Right. And so anyone looking at that would go, well, that sounds kind of obvious. Why don't we just go do that? And so the answer is, why don't people do that? All right. And so with regard to position diversity, as an example, in credit, um, it's a lot harder uh, to invest, you know, accumulate 50 investments than it is 20 investments. Right. And there may be uh, diseconomies of scale and scope that preclude certain people from participating in that and leave them overexposed. And people on the equity side have traditionally used 30 as kind of a Mendoza line around what is proper diversity. But that's in a series of investments that have a normal distribution of outcomes as opposed to one skewed toward upside, capped upside and unlimited downside uh, that you have in credit. And then second, with regard to the lack of correlation amongst the constituent parts that might otherwise mitigate alpha, you have the issue of these very narrow scoped uh, investment mandates that have arisen post the GFC, which effectively create this tremendous incentive toward moral hazard, right? And, and, and you know, if I'm given money to do a very narrow thing, 99 out of 100 folks will go do that narrow thing, no matter whether it's interesting or not. And furthermore, they have no other choice if they're going to effectively feed themselves but to do that. And so not only do they do things that don't make sense and subject themselves and other people to moral hazard, but they they couldn't if they wanted to create that level of um, uh, orthogonality because th- their narrow mandate precludes it, right? And so therefore, they're kind of uh, set up to be you know, in front of the bus when it comes to hit them. Great points. I want to shift gears
1: a little bit and, and talk about uh, growth credit or, mm. uh, and venture debt, and, and those are related, not exactly the same thing, but but similar in many respects. And you know, it's funny when you were mentioning earlier about this idea of the core portfolio being a great marketing term because it makes mm. people think low risk. I think the people on the venture side really screwed up because they call making loans to startups venture debt. And people hear the word venture and they think risky. And that's a huge misconception, probably the worst marketing decision of all time. And Mm -hmm. also leads a lot of people astray in the sense that they think venture debt is risky when in fact, if done properly, it's got incredible risk-adjusted return potential. And you've been somebody who's been involved in the space pretty much from the beginning. And you've done some incredible things. So I'd love to hear about your early days in, in, in venture debt and then you know how you got here and then what you're seeing going forward as opportunities in both venture debt and growth
2: credit. Sure. Well, look, I think I think you're right. That is kind of a negative dog whistle. Uh, right. and uh, you know, particularly now, and it'll probably increase now that everything venture is scary, right? From all the blow-ups and, and ugliness that's happening in that in the aforementioned mass extinction event. Um, I would say the reality is uh they're like anything that uh, we do, every permutation of industry, product, and geography in which we engage, um, there's kind of a time to do it and a time not to do it, right? Uh, because each of the, you know, on each direction, it gets overdone, right? And there's a frequency and wavelength to all of these different permutations in which we engage. And venture de- venture lending is no different. When I started uh, thinking about venture debt was really at the time of the late 90s when there was a business called Comdisco. And Comdisco uh, was really an, originally a venture lessor. Um, which is another term you don't hear too much lately, but uh, it, that kind of got its way into venture debt and then kind of you know went public, raised a huge amount of debt itself and then consequently blew itself up for a whole variety of um, idiosyncratic and, and bad incentive reasons. And so <clears throat> what was, as I looked at that blow up and, and thought about what, what went wrong here and we bought some of their obligations at, at pretty interesting prices, What was particularly interesting uh, was this notion of, you know, if you look at the life cycle of a growth enterprise, at what point is there any risk other than an equity risk? Right. Let's start with that. And so early on, even into the 70s, there were in, in growth companies, they needed to buy big hunks of equipment, right? that, uh, you know, allowed them to run their computer programs or test their life sciences projects or whatever it was. And they didn't want to dilute their equity value, right? And so those things had value. And so suddenly there was something in that enterprise, no matter how risky it was, that that provide could provide somebody in the capital structure a risk other than an equity risk, right? So as an example, I'm in the uh, pharmaceutical, you know, emerging pharmaceutical area. I've raised venture capital. I'm testing my drugs. I have a whole range of kind of lab equipment that is necessary to do that. All my tests uh, go wrong. Uh, No one, the drugs don't work. It's a complete nightmare. Okay, company's gone. Enterprise is gone. Equipment can still be used by somebody else, right? So there's a non-zero outcome for the, you know, those who capitalize that equipment. So that was kind of an interesting notion. Right, because at the time there were banks who said, "Well, that's a risky enterprise. I'm not financing that equipment," and they didn't take into account the fact that the equipment itself would kind of, you know, effectively uh, husband value for the creditor that would provide a different type of return for unit of risk that, and that was created by the equity. And so, as that evolved and uh, leasing became less of a thing because there was just a lot less, relatively speaking, to lease because you know computers got cheaper and more portable and uh, et cetera. People started to think about venture lending. So then the question is, at what point is there a differentiated return period of risk among capital capital structure uh, constituents in a venture company? Right. And so the answer is very simply if this, if it quote unquote doesn't work, um, is the thing worth zero? Well, there's no debt risk to be taken. Right. Uh, and so therefore, it doesn't require, uh, it doesn't. Uh, Deserve, so to speak, somebody willing to take anything other than an equity return for participating in that capital structure. But what you found is, oh, well, wait a second. Even after the series A or series B, there was a recurring revenue stream from SaaS. There was a customer list. There was some tangible value. Again, going back to first principles on curating cash, that some other party minimally could derive cash flow from, right? Such that. If they were differing uh, participants in the capital structure, uh, they could have different outcomes and therefore there was some sort of non-equity risk to be taken thoughtfully. And furthermore, when you looked at that advance and you looked at the resulting cash balance and the cash burn of the enterprise, something that was never priced in was the fact that as companies uh, got closer and closer to not having cash, they started conserving cash. Right. And if you were an interest payment versus all the other uses of cash they had, you would be the kind of last to go, so to speak. And so, inevitably, burn uh, was not just here's the cash on my balance sheet, here's the current cash, and here's the time at which I'll have cash out. You would have kind of a, a, a slope, a gently sloping logarithmic decline in overall cash burn as, as companies dealt with their issue. And so, the venture lender, as an arithmetic fact of the matter, could say, well, on its face, uh, if things really go terrible here, uh, I've got, you know, 46 cents of interest in principle before this thing goes cash out and some additional value that may be derived from its hard asset value or other monetizable value by strategic. But in fact, on a systematic basis across a diverse pool of these things, given that kind of logarithmic trend that was not modeled into the outcomes, it might actually have been, you know, 68 cents, right? And so suddenly... If you advance a little less, you're going to systematically have that much more chance of being covered. As a result, across that whole portfolio, you're going to have that much greater a chance of a new round getting raised. At which point, all your risk is out, and you may then be appropriately compensated by a series of options or warrants that you might receive. Such that when you put it all together, there was a very thoughtful, actuarially determinable, favorable return per unit of risk to be had without ever taking a venture capital risk right now that's a mouthful but it is it, it is you know mathematically provable and it's math that can work at times and then cannot work at times right when people kind of get when it becomes overdone and we've seen three cycles of this since you know since the 90s okay, uh and anyway, let's pause for a quick
1: second just for for people listening in terms of everything you just said mm-hmm. it sounds really complex but the reality is What a venture loan is, is is it's typically a short maturity loan, three or four years, and it's floating rate. So it doesn't have interest rate risk because it's floating. And it's usually uh, well collateralized in the sense that the loan to value is very low. And what we see in the market is the LTV on these loans from the better lenders is in the 10 to 15% range typically. So you've got this cushion and it doesn't necessarily mean it's collateralized by all hard assets, but they're to your point earlier, there's a lot of residual value in these companies. Like they're, they're generating revenue. They've got contracts, they've got customer lists, they've got intellectual property that has value. So, so as the investor, you're basically taking a low risk bet on the credit side, because you're, you're, you know, you're at the top of the capital structure. The LTV is very low. And then you're also compensated with equity warrants. And I think that's what a lot of people miss is that you get that upside when the company does well. And so you've got that optionality that other credit products don't have. And and to me, that's what makes venture debt and growth credit such a spectacular potential investment because you've got this steady income that you're earning from the loan, but you've also got this optionality to, to have massive upside if the company succeeds. So talk a little bit about And how do you think about that structure being unique in in the outcomes that it can provide?
2: Yeah, look, I think um, it's, as you point out, with sufficient diversity, not only in terms of position number, but even the types of businesses that are financed and even potentially where they're financed, um, you can diversify a lot. uh, You can diversify away a lot of the risk and given the kind of extreme asymmetry with which at times, uh, however, infrequently venture cap- venture capital bets are, you know, do pay off big, right? You can end up with a kind of call it when it's working a risk adjusted fifteen to twenty plus percent in a low rate environment um, with a very difficult um, time losing money. Um, now, I would point out again if you look at uh, as as you got to oh five oh six oh seven, too much money came in the math started not to work, et cetera. Um, even in the 20 teens, still too much competition. There was pressure to deploy on the part of some of these enterprises that had become BDCs, right? But now, as you had the blow up in the in the venture world, a much better time, right? The bar is much higher to get capital on the seed, Series A, and Series B. What does that mean? Well, in a world where uh, at the screaming heights in, in growth, Seed series, A series, B generically look like, call it, you know, uh, 18 pre, 58 pre, and 150 pre. That now might be 7 pre, 22 pre, and 37 pre, right? And so uh, ultimately, the asymmetry of the options you're receiving, right, is going to be potentially better. The amount that you can or might need to advance is going to be lower the rate you can charge is going to be higher. Risk free is higher as well, uh, and so it it seems to be that we're very much in an in, in an environment where the left side of the barbell, new issue opportunity and venture lending, is very compelling. I would point out uh, as well, we have this notion of growth credit, which generically in our mind means a combination of venture lending, distressed debt investing, and direct lending, where there are very large scale enterprises that are looking to borrow. 200, 300 million dollars, whose latest round was five billion, and they were hoping for eight, and now it's going to be two. And if they can just delay so that in their minds, they can keep hope alive to, you know, for the markets to, you know, normalize so they get back to being billionaires, um, to borrow at 15% loan to value and pay in the 20s is delightful, right? And particularly when they're faced with, you know, a vicious down round from their own venture capitalists, that might be very compelling. So I think on both sides of the barbell, there's a real opportunity. The other small caveat I'd point, I'd, I'd raise with you relative to your um, comment regarding uh, floating is it is great to have a floating loan, uh, but it doesn't completely protect you, as now real estate lenders have learned, from diminution in asset value caused by an increase in rates, right? So you may have a much higher loan to value. Now, you foisted even more of the overall beta risk onto your counterparty by having a floating rate instrument. But ultimately, if that asset is now worth a lot less, you're a lot deeper into the credit, right? And so, you know, that is the crux of what real estate credit is now contending with, is the assets are just worth a lot less, even when they were floating. Some great
1: points you made there. When, when we think about venture debt, or when you think about venture debt, what are the keys to de-risking a transaction?
2: Well, I think um, again, in this environment where the standards of the venture capitalists are far higher, um, there's a lot more opportunity to look at fund intrinsically good businesses, right? the the ideal, in my mind, the ideal venture loan is one where, for instance, there's cash flow to be had, where the borrower is is specifically spending that cash flow to grow and we're one to shut off that spend. You'd have cash flow again, right? And so therefore there's a differentiated return period unit of risk to be had by a by a credit investor, right? And you can see that in in enterprise software and SaaS and other recurring revenue models. And there are other kind of analogs to that in and and by the way, in not in in businesses that are not even traditionally or what more recently traditionally venture capital type businesses are. You know, people, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You didn't have to be an internet company or a software company right or a life sciences company to get venture capital and to have venture capital risks you know early investors like seven rosen or patrick hoff or um morgan thaler or all those you know very well-known names of that time you know they did restaurants they did a whole lot of different things right if you look at most recently alan patrick hoff's uh you know memoir it talks about some of these more differentiated businesses he'd financed as a venture capitalist over time and so i think the quality And the kind of line of sight to real cash flow is going to be much more available to venture lenders now and to because of the nature of what venture capitalists are going to be focused on. Um, And then then on the opposite side of that, you know, the the intolerance for what are effectively big binaries, right? We don't like big binaries. We saw venture lending opportunities in basically... um, what were called challenger banks, right, and other uh, financial institutions, uh, or neo banks, right, and we would joke among our colleagues: neo bank is a term for a bank that makes no money. Uh, and you know, when when and if that fails, you know, again, no cash flow, nothing to get out of it, nothing to harvest, right, and so therefore, everybody in the capital structure, no matter how high in the capital structure, is taking a binary lose it all risk. Therefore, there is no non-equity exposure to be had. And therefore, we should not be there. And so, you know that that's really the the killer is when you start providing equity for debt returns in venture lending, you're dead, right? And 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 you know that's it does require a lot of discernment uh, if you're going to kind of be uh, successful in it through cycles.
1: And you hit on a a key point that I hear a lot, and that a lot of folks will say, "Well, venture debt to me sounds like debt returns and equity risk." And if done right, it's actually the exact opposite. It's equity returns, plus some actually, right. but right. with with senior debt risk. And, right. and so um, it's funny because to your point, um, when the market was really peaking in 2021, there were a lot of folks that were making venture loans, like even SVB that weren't in my mind being compensated adequately for those risks. Making a venture loan at prime rate, when prime was roughly you know, three and a quarter percent, is not a good bet. It's not a good investment. In fact, it, it's silly. And mm-hmm. there was a business model that they had that kind of made that viable. That we won't necessarily get into. But that said, in really simple terms, they mispriced the risk. Mm-hmm. And and now I think a lot of that's coming home to roost, and we're starting to you know see in the earnings calls that the public venture lenders um, are are you know having trouble. They're pulling back. They they haven't deployed much new capital. And I think they're going to be quite hamstrung by their existing portfolios going forward, which makes uh, new lenders and, or folks that have balance sheet, dry powder, liquidity mm-hmm. makes them, that uh, puts them in a pole position essentially to basically be looking at every deal while being able to be very, very selective and having to your point that you made earlier, better transparency into these companies. Uh, the, the companies are, the, the winners are going to be uh, backed strongly by the VCs still. And you're going to get much lower uh, equity valuations at this point in the cycle too. So those equity warrants that you're getting, you're going to get more equity warrants, you're going to get them at a lower strike price, You're going to, and you're going to get them uh, ultimately at a you know, much lower valuation. And, and so I think there's, uh, there's huge potential for new originations in, in this next part of the market cycle. Um, what are some of the things that, uh, well, one of the questions I had for you actually is, why aren't more people doing this, right? Like, I, I, I started looking at this about five years ago and had worked at you know, three very large, you know, trillion dollar mega asset managers and banks and thought, you know, there's not a lot of money to be made in commoditized products where there's no informational advantage and everybody's kind of seeing the same information and success is beating a benchmark by you know, 25 basis points in fixed income. And I just thought, you know, that wasn't really one, what I wanted to spend my career doing. And so I started looking into the private markets and venture debt for many of the reasons you outlined stood out to me as a tremendous opportunity. And it's gotten better, which is which is amazing because I thought this was a grand slam opportunity four or five years ago. And now to me, it's almost like a can't miss. It's almost like a like home run derby. Where, you know, it's, it's not even like a live game. They're just lobbing me pitches and you can knock them out of the park. What do you think um, the opportunity set looks like going forward and and why aren't more people trying to jump in? Like what are, what are the what are the barriers to entry?
2: In other words, well, I would say the barriers to entry are not high. I would say the barriers to inclination might be high, right? Uh, and so, in a world where people want to um, uh, asset accumulate, right, this is not something that's going to be a ten billion dollar fund, right? Without doing very poor risk adjusted returns. Um, in fact, uh, I would say that one of the best ways to be a venture lender is to be incredibly incremental uh, from a structural perspective, meaning here's a $15 million line or a $20 million line. I'm going to give you a three now, right? And then you're going to do these wonderful things, at which point I'll have no problem giving you another four because you have completely de-risked me. And then if these further wonderful things happen, then I'll give you another Seven, right, et cetera. and so you know it's tiny bits at a time, high monitoring, you know, a lot of surveillance, uh, etc., and 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 frankly, on a at a workout, very work intensive. The second piece is there's a there definitely has um, there's been traditionally um, a uh, a unique relationship among venture lenders with their um, venture capital counterparties. Right. And so I would say in earlier stages of the venture lending life cycle or timing, 20 years ago, I definitely saw instances where venture capitalists supported enterprises and wrote checks where if I were them, I wouldn't have, right? Um, and they did it not just because their views on the business, but it seemed like they were really looking at their, to a non-zero extent their creditors, their stakeholders, and and kind of saying, I'm gonna support this thing, right? And PE firms even did that a little bit, right? Now it's a free for all, it's a free for all. Uh and you know, they'll as soon, you know, write the check as gut you. Right. And that and and so that creates a dissonance because you're like, hey, I want the venture capitalists to love me, right? And I know they're going to protect me when things are bad, just like the leverage lenders to the PE firms. It's ridiculous, Um, but it persists in that marketplace. And there's a bit of a Stockholm syndrome problem. And so now that the equity investors behavior has certainly materially changed on a secular basis and will only become more uh, bloodless, not only with regard to their creditors, but also their fellow equity holders, you know, it's probably time for a, a what we would call a tough but fair kind of way of dealing with these folks, right? And we have seen extreme reluctance uh on the part of certain venture lenders that we know to kind of have grown-up conversations with uh venture capital backers of enterprises that where things are not going that well. And that's really scary because if I'm junior in this capital structure and I have an out-of-the-money call option and I'm willing to. to to diminish the value of your in-the-money position to benefit my out-of-the-money call option, you know, that's just, that's fundamentally wrong, right? That's not okay. Um, And covenants and that relationship should be set up so that that is precluded, right? And you start, you start to hear, oh, you won't be founder-friendly, you know, blah, 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 right? The reality is, no one was borrowing from you because they w- were looking to be your buddy, right? They they saw for from their perspective, capital that might have been overpriced relative to the debt risk it was taking, but was still accretive in their view of what the ultimate equity value was going to be, or otherwise they would have raised equity, right? And they didn't. Uh, and so I think there's a material evolution in that conversation. And so if I were a global mega asset manager, I'd go, well, wait a second. It's hard to scale this thing. I can't put out multiple, multiple billions. A lot of the guys who do it are kind of overawed by the counterparties and, and cheerleading for their own, for the counterparties. Mm, you know, I don't need to do this, right? And so that's why people don't do it, right? But, but there is a business there. It does make sense. It can make sense, but it requires a tremendous amount of discipline.
1: I 100% agree. And, you know, people ask me this all the time as I've been raising capital for um, ARI and our Venture Debt Opportunities Fund one of their questions is always, well, if this is such a good idea. Why hasn't somebody done it before? And I said, well, I don't know. Did you ask Mike Milken the same thing when he was basically reinventing or popularizing the, the junk bond market? I mean, sometimes there has to be innovation. And But to your point, and I, I really want to hear your thoughts on this, I think it's because it's just too small for the big players and the smartest players to care. Because if you're already at a really large firm, you're not going to, put all this effort into launching a 300 million dollar to 500 million dollar fund when you're working on launching a 15 billion dollar credit fund okay. and if you're talented enough to run a smaller fund successfully in, in a product that's that's you know pretty complex in many ways you're already probably making a lot of money somewhere else and you have other things that you're thinking about too. Like oftentimes you have a family and you're in a certain geography and you're not going to give up your job, making a couple million bucks a year on wall street to go launch a fund. That's going to be a fraction of the size of your current fund and and potentially, you know, disrupt your personal life. And so there's, there's a lot of factors that go into this outside of just a pure numbers, right. And that there's, there's, there's just a lot of variables that I think people don't contemplate. And, and so that, to me, that's the biggest reason It's just that it's too small and that the people that are smart enough to do it well already have something going that they you know choose to do over this. And, you know, I was a little bit of an exception because you know, I wanted to build something that was innovative and I wanted, I felt like venture debt had the opportunity to be revolutionary. And I think more so now than ever it does, because there's a huge gap in the market This is a product, if you will, that's fundamentally needed. It's not some bullshit Wall Street creation, right? This capital is needed by startups. Startups are those that are creating most of the value in the economy. innovation is what creates value. Startups are the innovators. They're creating the value they need to get funded. And now they're starting to learn that, wow, there's other ways to fund my business outside of just equity and as a founder, I'm incentivized to keep as much as possible of the company that I've built. And you talked earlier about alignment. Well, founders don't want to give away their company to you know, Sequoia or you know, somebody on Sand Hill Road. They want to keep as much as possible. So when they're given the option to utilize debt, which is far less dilutive and also cheaper, and then therefore keep a bigger stake of the company they've built, they're going to choose that option if they understand it fully in my opinion, 10 times out of 10, because as an entrepreneur, I would, and so would you, I imagine. So that's that's part of the reason why I think venture debt has huge upside, because the pie is growing as the innovation economy grows. And within that pie, venture debt's going to become a larger share. There There's no reason in my mind that revenue-positive companies that have the ability to service debt shouldn't have some in their capital structure. And- To your point, leverage is incredibly important, and the the idea of milestone-based financing or incremental financing, delayed draw loans, these are very important because it enables the company to to draw on this capital, but in in a measured way, where they're not getting over their skis in terms of leverage, and it also protects the lender, right? But ultimately, they should have some debt in their capital structure the amount of debt you know depends on the company and their their financials and you need to think of you know what's optimal based on each bespoke instance. but generally speaking, companies that that have the ability to service debt should always have
2: some in their capital structure in my view I wouldn't I, I wouldn't disagree with that I think I think it is worth you mentioned Mike Milken, if you actually look at the uh, w. Braddock Hickman study upon which he based his thoughts of the high yield market. The um, reasoning around return premium risk um, that got him there is very similar to that to the way in which you would get to that same conclusion within venture debt. So for anyone really geeky enough to care and who wants to dig in, getting that study is interesting because it may provide you a scaffolding or framework with which to kind of analyze the reality of the risk risk optimized nature of venture lending.
1: If you were to summarize it, just give us a little sneak peek. How would you do so?
2: It basically says that the uh, that the average returns of high yield or non investment grade bonds more than offset the incremental amount of defaults and uh, of the severity effect of defaults. Yep. Yeah. Very simple.
1: Very complex in many ways, but also very simple intuitively. So Dan, we're almost out of time. We've got about three minutes left. I wanted to give you the opportunity to leave us with some parting thoughts, and that could be anything you'd like. But perhaps where you think people should be focus, uh, focusing their investment opportunities or focusing their capital deployment over the next three
2: to five years. That'd be an interesting place to start. Sure. Look, I think. Um, uh, if you are, it depends on who, what people you're talking about. You know, I, if you were kind of a retail investor, I'd be looking at, you know, shortest duration, investment grade or near investment grade fixed income for the first time in a long time, because I think it can make a lot of sense um, and should be the benchmark against which people should look at uh, other alternatives that might have marginally more risk, uh, but consequently required, be required to get a lot more return. I think that um, people should be thinking about, what is true liquidity and whether it's there or not, uh, and, and really what their kind of day-to-day needs are and what they can afford to have locked away, no matter what the terms of the investment documents say. And I would say that uh, further, uh, it's worth thinking through, um, you know, the 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 left tail risk of of something much graver happening. Right? We saw recently with comments from uh, from Jamie Dimon. We see Berkshire with 150 billion in cash. Those are not coincidences. Very very. Bright and experienced people think that there is a left tail risk out there that hasn't been um, encountered yet, and so making sure there's some amount of resources that are husbanded to kind of make one comfortable uh, when, when, and if that occurs, is an important thing to be thinking about today.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on. I feel like this is this is PhD level plus some. So a lot <laughs> of people will have to probably listen to it three or four times, but when they do and they understand what you're talking about, I think they'll they'll come away with some tremendous insights. Well, thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it and uh, happy to uh, uh, connect soon. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thanks everybody for listening to The 7 & 7 Show with Zach Ellison. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to The 7 & 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7and7show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at IR at ARIVC.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.